I grew up in a fairly progressive household. Uh, my dad was um, a publisher of organic gardening magazine in the 1970s, which meant that the word co-op entered my personal lexicon about 1974, 1975. I can still remember what it looked like and the smell of the machine that made the organic peanut butter, and it came out all kind of gooey, and then my parents would put it on this multigrain bread, and then I would go to school, and my friends would have Jif and Wonder Bread, and I would say, I want that. <laughs> now I'm actually really grateful that my parents raised me that way, because I like the multigrain bread, and I like the extra thick peanut butter. I grew up in a household that watched a lot of, of public television, a lot of PBS, and so obviously Sesame Street, and uh, 321 Contact and the Electric Company, these were like sacred texts to me, things I grew up with. And then as I started to grow up a little bit more, 1980s, there used to be a lot of reruns of this particular show on PBS, Monty Python's Flying Circus, the skit from the wonderfully uh, gifted and talented British acting troupe. A couple nights ago on television, I was just kind of scrolling through the channels, channel surfing, and I, I saw a little clip of John Cleese, one of the main guys in Monty Python. I thought to myself, you know, it's been years since I've actually gone back and watched some of those scripts that at about age 13, I had so many of them like committed to memory. And so I went back and I just called up on my phone. I called up uh, uh, the, the English Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> I'm not 6'5 and gawky and a wonderful like John Cleese is, so I can't do it normally, normally as humorously. However, uh, it always makes me laugh when doing a, leading a mindfulness retreat. <laughs> and I see some of us actually starting to walk as if we are in the ministry of silly walks. I think of um, the killer joke material, if you remember that one. The joke's so funny that the guy who wrote it died immediately. And do you know, if you know the history, according to Monty Python, it actually is the joke that ended World War II. Because the English soldiers, piece by piece, they couldn't do it all at once or they'd die, translated into German and read it on the battlefield at Ardennes, and that's what ended the war. And then there's the favorite one here of mine, the dead parrot. Yes. The litany, the litany of euphemisms for death that they run through, and I can't do it in the Cockney like John Cleese did, but I just want to read this through you. The basic idea, if you don't know it, is that John Cleese is sold a parrot who's dead. Michael Palin, the other guy, refuses to acknowledge that the parrot is dead. He owns the pet shop. And so John Cleese launches into this parrot is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff, bereft of life. He rests in peace. If you hadn't have nailed him to the perch, he'd be pushing up daisies. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the bleeding choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. <laughs> it brought back some really good memories. And as I kind of shuffled through all these old skits, something changed or something shifted. I actually recognized as I watched a few of these that something I used to remember as funny wasn't funny at all anymore. There's one skit about the award for the upper class twit of the year, and I recognized pretty much all of the humor was intended to be derived from people with intellectual disability or people who may have autism spectrum disorder. didn't find that funny anymore. And then 
I watch the, I'm a lumberjack, you know? Yeah, that's how I remembered it. That's not how I saw it this time, however. Guy who's a shopkeeper, wants a virile job, a kind of masculine job. He wants to do something that's ruddy and outdoors. And he starts singing about it. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay, et cetera, et cetera. And he's joined by a troop of Canadian Mounties that start echoing everything he says. And his girlfriend who looks up at him adoringly, except he starts to mention things that kind of fall outside the prescribed bounds, the rigid bounds of what supposedly is masculine, like depressed wide flower, wide flowers. Starts to talk about wearing suspenders and a bra. And lest you think this actually was a satire of what we now would call toxic masculinity. The original version of this sketch ends with those Mounties no longer parroting what this guy who is the aspirational arch- uh, lumberjack wants to say and start pelting him with rotten fruit and hurling insults at him. All because he dared to step outside the bonds of this straitjacket known as masculinism and a different expression and experience of his gender. I no longer find that funny or amusing because my own definitions of humor have changed over the years. Humor that is drawn upon cruelty or humiliation, especially for people who are vulnerable in many ways. I recognize that has shifted. And because I like to really pay attention to things I find surprising, what I noticed as I just sat with this awareness that these skits that I had once found funny I no longer find amusing was sadness. Sadness for people who may have had to sit through those skits over the years and had to hide their reaction or pretend it was funny because they had to go along or else they would be singled out for shaming or humiliation because their gender experience and expression and identity didn't match what people were telling them it should match. And then one level down below that sadness that kind of held it was a deeper sadness. This recognition that something I once loved so much I had committed to memory and used to sing with my friends was no longer funny to me at all. It was an experience of sadness that was release. I need to let you go. It's not working anymore. Now, a television skit is a small-scale taste of that kind of grief and sadness. And I absolutely do believe that this work of allowing ourselves to grieve at this level for one for what once worked for us and no longer does is actually the heart of all mature or maturing spiritual teachings especially in this country right now i mean this language we have this rhetoric this actually i would say addiction to winning at all costs all the time it leaves no room for grief It leaves no room to step outside of that frame of reference and admit that sometimes life hurts. Imagine what our politics would look like if we could say to people who may be remembered another time fondly, even if I could disagree with what the history says, it was never that great. 
but we could at least honor the fact that something is passing away and something else is coming to be, and we at least could grieve together rather than insisting we could go back sometime that wasn't so good at all to begin with. It's like, you know, we're stuck in that Archie Bunker thing that opened up all in the family. Like, those were the days back then. I was driving here today this morning. I thought about what a different expression of allowing grief to season us, allowing ourselves to let go. I'm a pretty deep-dive Bruce Springsteen fan, as some of you know have been around for a while. There's a song of his called Independence Day from his album The River that some of you might be aware of. And it's all about a young man saying goodbye to his father. If you know anything about Bruce's biography, his father lived with undiagnosed mental illness for many years, many decades, and it made Bruce's father a rather cruel person. Bruce has done a lot of work to release that and forgive that, and you can see that starting in 1980, him beginning that process of acknowledging and letting go. He says, all boys must run away at Independence Day. All men must make their way from Independence Day. And because Bruce, in many ways, thinks and sings like a social worker what's happening at the local level, this sense of change, this need to release what's happening here in this intimate relationship with his father that's no longer healthy for either of them, what Bruce also acknowledges is that there's new people moving into their neighborhood, and they just see things in different ways. And Bruce acknowledges to his father with empathy and compassion but absolute truth Pretty soon, all we know will be swept away. That capacity to acknowledge, to release, to grieve. Some things have their time and they pass away. Powerful work that is. To step outside of control and winning all the time and to open our hearts more deeply. That's what this message series is about, what we set our heart on. It's about locating our aspirations, our goals, our dreams right here in our hearts. And, you know, it's an absolutely true thing that the minute we recognize that we set our hearts upon something, like I said, Monty Python, letting that go was small-scale stuff, small potatoes. But when it's another person, when it's people that we love, we recognize that what it means is that we're setting our hearts upon very fragile and always moving targets. (laughs) For many of us, that's where the real pain sets in because it's this paradox, right, of what it is to be alive, that we need connections. We need connections to thrive, to be alive. This has been woven throughout all of this clinical social work program I've been doing these last few years. It's what's called attachment theory. I know a number of you know exactly what this is about. I'm going to try and condense it. I've shared some of this with you before. This is... um, from a teacher many years ago, Mary Ainsworth. She talked about the circle of security, that what little kids need to feel a sense of secure attachment is to go out into the world. And by into the world, it could mean like between here and the ends of the stage (laughs) to separate themselves from their primary caregiver or caregivers and wander off. And sometimes you see little kids do this, like look back. (laughs) Is it still safe? And sometimes what they might encounter because the world is a big and scary place, they'll kind of get back real quickly and they'll just need to know that their primary caregiver is letting them know it's okay what they're feeling. Mary Ainsworth talks about this circle of security, which I think in many ways, even as we grow, is still a template for our lives. Allows us to feel a sense of secure attachment, to be able to go out into the world and to be able to come back home at the same time, and to know it's okay what we're feeling. But the truth is, many of us didn't get secure attachment. 
or it was pretty imperfect, or there was a lot of fear baked into it, or our parents gave us, or primary caregivers gave us mixed messages. And so many of us know from childhood what's called in the clinical language an attachment injury, a place where because we are kind of like Legos, we're made to connect, but the connections didn't take. Those still cause our hearts pain. We carry our models of attachment into our adult relationships. Here's the good news and the bad news. It gets in the way all the time of forging connections, and our adult relationships are beautiful opportunities to heal those attachment injuries and to grow new levels and layers to our hearts. This is one of the reasons that I think communities of all sorts, and specifically spiritual communities, are so powerful. That right here in this community, we can continue this work of recognizing what it is to heal our own hearts by building that capacity for connection in this community. And yet, then there's always another level down. (laughs) Because the minute we make those connections, the minute we set our heart upon something that is changing, and communities, just like any other form of human relationship, they change all the time, that can break the heart as well. I've been thinking about this in connection with size transitions. Some of you know this. Some of us have had long conversations about this. But just starting from a baseline level that maybe you might not know too much about this. Most American spiritual communities, 80 to 90 percent, are 150 people or fewer. There's something about that 150 to 200 level in which things change, relationships change, structures that once fit at the smaller level don't work anymore. And this is why it's such amazing news that Wellsprings has kind of got beyond that level. But here's the not so good news. I'm kind of doing one hand, the other hand, one hand, the other hand all throughout this morning is that we're right in that zone. And it goes up to about 400 or so people in which it's tough sledding for a while. It really is. And like that saying, there's no way out but through. If we want to continue to grow numerically and beyond numerically, maturationally, there's no way around this. And there's all kinds of teachings and readings and skills and workshops you can take that will teach you how you can change your structures and your systems to be a congregation that moves from what's called pastoral size to program size. But the studying I've been doing has given me a different perspective on it. That actually what happens when congregations go through size transitions like we are in the midst of and will be in the midst of for a while more, it's actually experienced in an emotional way as an attachment injury. Makes sense, right? And here's the thing with attachment injuries. There's no reasoning with them. (laughs) We got to feel them and they hurt. And I think that's why so many congregations hit that size level wall and shrink back. Recognizes that one of the things that can happen when congregations hit the size is people feel like they're falling through the cracks. This is one of my mea culpas for you this morning. I know that especially when I was lead minister, people fell through the cracks here because our growth outstripped our systems. And we're trying to get better at that. This past Monday night, I can see some of the faces around the room. You were there for our first pastoral care training. 
I mean, there were like 13 people in the room and like a half of that size at least who wanted to be there or couldn't. We'll continue to hold these trainings over time. And what that pastoral care training is about is about recognizing how empowering it is for people who aren't just the ministers to extend that kind of care to each other and to build a system of it so that people don't fall through the cracks, especially at some of the most vulnerable times in people's lives. It was a powerful training, and given my kind of clinical training that I'm at right now, I did most of the listening exercises. It was good, got a lot of feedback. It was powerful for people I could see. And what I want to say right now, and I want to be real clear about that, I was not the minister who saw that need for this new system and structure for how we could care for each other. This was Reverend Lee, who has been identifying this for months, if not over a year, as a transition we needed to make if we were going to meet each other in the ways that we needed to, to be able to truly care for each other and not have people fall through the cracks. It is one of Reverend Lee's most signature gifts, and she has many, that she can see that structures and systems are about the integrity of our relationships with each other. It is a gift she has given us at this time. It is absolutely essential, and I am so grateful. And also, it was Reverend Lee who remembered that actually today was our 12th birthday, or at least the observance of it. I was here then, and perhaps because there's so much going on, I completely forgot. So Reverend Lee brought us the cupcake. Thank you. And I am recognizing that at this time in the life of Wellsprings, it's not just the size transition that's causing some consternation and some challenge. It's decisions that I have made and am making that I feel a call to change the nature of my ministry here, that I got this clinical social work degree to use it and to be in the field. Now, many of you have said to me very directly, Happy for you, glad for you, faith and confidence of Wellsprings, it's awesome, win, 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 win all over the place. And that's great if that's your experience. Because the truth is, quite a number of people in this community have said something different. Faith and trust in Wellsprings, confidence in who we are, and also, there's nothing pathological in it, right? Nothing at all. Sadness, loss. A little bit of fear when things change here. And a lot of my job over the last couple months as I prepare for this sabbatical has been just about holding space for people if they are courageous enough, vulnerable enough, real enough to actually take these concerns directly to me, which I treasure, and simply to hold space for their experience to be their experience, whatever it is. And actually, by the way, it is this deepest experience of what it is to be in community with each other when these kind of attachment injuries open up, sometimes underneath us, and we feel vulnerable. That's exactly the reason why I do want to stay, albeit in a different form, a part of the ministerial staff here at Wellsprings, is because for me, this is the deepest kind of psycho-spiritual work of being in community with each other. And it's so powerful what happens when these trap doors open up underneath our feet and how we support each other, perhaps even catch each other at these times and hold space for one another. But, you know, that's what the town hall is about. I've made my desires known very clearly over these last few months, it's not my decision to make. It's yours. Love is not a victory march, right? It's not always cold and broken, but sometimes it is. Our circles of security will break. Deaths, transitions, endings, impermanence, love is not a victory march. 
And so that's actually where the call, the next level down comes. That as much as I believe in the psychological truth of attachment, of connections, that we are these Legos made to link up with each other, we need something else and we need something more as well. And it is particularly a part of the best spiritual traditions that I know of. Our need for attachment never has an expiration date, but it has maturation opportunities. In a word that sounds similar, like it's opposite, but it's not. Detachment. Which isn't indifference. As I understand attachment, it goes like this. Our hearts will always be seeking the experience of safety. Detachment says our hearts accept the reality that there is no complete security. And we choose to love anyway. Detachment has absolutely nothing to do with indifference. And it has actually nothing to do with uh, spiritual bypass, one of my favorite terms. Spiritual bypass, those are the teachers who kind of proclaim, I am one with everything. And I'm connected to absolutely no one. (laughs) That's spiritual bypass. That's not what detachment is. Detachment accepts this truth of the impermanence of everything, that everything is passing away into becoming something else. It's one of the reasons that I said when Reverend Lee was ordained here and I have said to other people that I have participated in their ordinations or in rituals in their service as they cement their bonds with their congregations, let your ministry break your heart. If I've done one thing right here at Wellsprings is that I have repeatedly allowed my ministry to break my heart, sometimes with an awful lot of internal resistance, sometimes I do it well. When we can allow our relationships, our loving relationships to break our hearts, we remind ourselves that it's only the relationships that could love and hold love in the first place that actually can break. That's the cost of doing business, of connection. There's no way to really demonstrate the detachment or to prove it to anyone. I think there are, however, pointers, the meaning for us in this life. One is from, now we can say, Mary Oliver, she of blessed memory, a great UU poet who just died, although her gifts day. This comes at the end of a poem she wrote about ecological devastation. She was so connected to nature, and so when things died and they did not need to, it broke her heart, and she concluded this poem with these words, I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. That is an invitation to detachment, because love is not a victory march. Detachment is not a dogma. It's not a belief. It's not even a teaching. All I can think of it as is this. It's an opening. A willingness to remain open. Some of you might remember all the way back. Maybe none of you do who are in the room. One of our first members who I did a funeral for here at Wellsprings, her name was Patty. She was 47. And she was dying of cancer. She was saying goodbye to her four beloved children and her beloved husband. And she did me the honor of allowing me to walk with her for part of the way as she was coming to the end of her life. And we had these amazing, soulful conversations in which she did most of the talking and I did most of the listening. I asked her at one point, what's what's happening with you right now? What's growing in you? And she understood her death process to be a growing process. She says, I believe my life is headed toward 
the great immensity. You could call this reality God, Buddha nature, life itself, I don't care. I think some of my favorite words are the great immensity. She had to say goodbye. She was also recognizing what it was to let that larger love hold her smaller, precious loves that were impermanent. I think this is one of the reasons the lessons of detachment makes us, so many of us, love and admire these two people, these two spiritual teachers. Thich Nhat Hanh, who is now in the process of dying and has gone home to Vietnam, the Dalai Lama. And perhaps you can say, okay, it's easy for them. They're monks. They're supposed to be detached. They don't have families. They don't have houses they've got to worry about. But most of these men have lived their entire lives in exile, away from the places and the people that were home to them. And still, they have encouraged millions worldwide. Keep your heart open. Continue to love, even in a life where everything is impermanent. I want to end today's message with something sweet. No, I am not giving you ice cream, sorry. This is the story of Baskin Robbins, or at least one part of it. It's the story of John Robbins and his father, Irv. Irv is the Robbins of Baskin Robbins who created it. Irv Robbins was one of these winning guys, driven, built an entire huge conglomerate ice cream place. Everyone knows it. Made millions, millions and millions and millions. Irv Robbins, who never once held his own children. So focused he was on winning and being driven. His son, John Robbins, grew up with a pretty clear attachment injury. John Robbins did not close his heart. He walked away from Baskin Robbins. He wanted nothing to do with the ice cream business. John Robbins uh, is the author of something called The Diet for New America which I experienced as not one of those shaming diets, but actually an invitation to pay attention to how what we consume expresses our ethical values. I'm an omnivore still, but as a result of what John Robbins wrote, I eat a much more plant-based diet than I used to. I'm not telling you you should. I'm telling you the effect it had on me. John Robbins allowed himself to fall in love with what we could call creation care, with the whole of the world and to want his life to express connection to it. But here's the thing. He wasn't doing spiritual bypass. He knew what it was to have his heart broken by his father, who he felt never loved him. But John Robbins did not close his heart to his dad. As eventually his dad lay dying, because all that winning and all that mastery doesn't forestall that, right? And Irv Robbins was coming to the end of his life. And he was a weakened, frail old man, laying in bed, taking meds that sometimes made him pass in and out of consciousness and decreased his pain. John Robbins saw his father in this state and he attended to him and was with him. And he went up and he kissed his father on the forehead. And I kind of startled Irv Robbins and said, why did you do that? He said, because I wanted to. And I love you. 
John Robbins kissed his father on the forehead again. And Irv Robbins uttered, less pain. And John Robbins said, more love. And he kissed him again. Less pain, Irv Robbins said. And John Robbins said, more love. And this went on and on. Less pain, more love. Until John Robbins kissed his father and didn't get a response. Until Irv Robbins said the last words he ever uttered, more love. Our hearts will break. You don't need me to tell you that. Just maybe to remind all of us about the invitation. That when we can allow our hearts to grow, even through all the impermanence and the times when love is so very far from a victory march, we will remind ourselves that there is a larger love that is trustworthy. If we open our hearts, that will hold all of our particular and small loves. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? O you, O thou who are the great immensity beyond any of our words to approach. And yet here's the thing. We don't need the words. We don't have to have the right language. It is practice more than belief to open and to continue to open. To know that right here and right now This is the invitation. Recognize how the heart may be closing because it's injured or hurting or tired. And to even treat those parts of ourselves that are hurting or injured or tired with grace and with peace and with love. To even open to what feels closing. This is to grow the heart. To remind ourselves we are made from and for connection. And that the heart grows wide with that connection. Amen.